Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited about this passage and frankly just terrified because I can't just explain it and have it be understood. But has a definition of a word ever lost its poignance or power for you? Perhaps you heard it so much it just doesn't matter anymore. You hear it all the time. It's kind of lost its significance. Perhaps the way we say something is awesome. That's a good example. We don't mean that it actually fills us with awe. We just mean it's, it's pretty darn cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Or the modern use of the word literally. Anyone? I literally died in that interview. Well, praise God, you're back. That's great. Now, this is, this is not a session of let's make fun of the modern use of language. Millennials, right? No, I'm a millennial, so hey, watch out. Um, but I want us to pause and consider how we use language, how we hold these words, these bold, precise words that are attached to a very significant meaning, and we just eventually dilute them. Something is no longer awesome. Something is no longer literally happening. It's just a way to point to something. And we use words and phrases so much that they become more of a moniker for a different idea rather than a label for that actual thing. I think we have a particular problem when it comes to biblical phrases. The type of phrases we grab from the Bible and say a lot, but we often, in our own minds, we dilute the meaning of that phrase. I think child of God is one of these phrases. Perhaps you think child of God and you think, oh, that's, that's a label for Christian. I'm a Christian, so I'm a child of God. Oh, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Are you a Jesus follower? Yes. Are you a child of God? Yes. That's, those are all the same thing to me. But I think we've lost the depth of that meaning. And it's, it's, it's become shallow. This morning, we're in Romans 8. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 8. We're continuing our walk through a chapter where Paul is explaining and emphasizing what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does in our lives. So let's read. I'm going to read this through. Romans 8, 15 through 17. Paul continues from where we left last week. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this passage, um, and as I ponder it, we're going to walk through this. I find this particularly awesome, and it kind of just freaks me out. It's properly awesome. It, it, It should fill us with awe. If we totally, fully grasp this, we should sit in our pew today and just be stunned. Just be amazed, overwhelmed with what this means. As I've pondered it, I've thought this past week, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not understanding this and I'm taking it too far. Maybe this, I'm, I'm describing it and it's too good. Maybe it's too powerful. Maybe it's too amazing. But it's true. The Spirit, as described, the work He does in this passage, the Spirit changes the way we relate to God, the way we pray, the way we identify the way we suffer, and the way we hope. The Spirit changes these things. 
So we're going to start in verse 15 um, and start with Paul. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Sometimes it's helpful to explain something by telling you what it's not. Uh, Paul will eventually press in and define the spirit positively, but first he wants to start in the negative. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. We are talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who works in us. And Paul reminds his readers, the people in Rome, it's not a spirit of slavery. I think he's talking to at least two types of people um, or people that have two types of past. And you guys probably fall into one of these. One in religious legalism and one in paganism. There were Jews who took the good law and said, my performance on this list is what determines God's goodness to me. So every single day there was a slavery to performance and an uncertainty and fear that maybe today was done in a little bit of a slipshod fashion. Maybe I messed up. Maybe this is not good enough. And I, I get that mindset. That's a simple thing for me to think about. I can think about God, the creator of the universe. He made everything and he has this list in the Bible that is the law. And I quickly realize that often, sometimes, most of the time, all of the time, I don't measure up to that. And there's a spirit of slavery there, a sense of fear. And the Jews would hear Paul's words and understand them and feel them and identify them with, yes, the spirit of slavery, of fear. I used to be terrified. Did I do okay today? Did I do enough? And we've been talking about, all of chapter 7 is talking about the law, and, and Paul has been addressing this idea and helping them understand that you're not attached in that same way anymore. You are attached to God. There's also the Gentiles in the church of Rome, and they lived in a different world, a different culture. Their past is a different one. The story they think of is a different one. They lived in a religious, pagan world of Romans in a pantheon of gods. They spent their time trying to please different gods, and they weren't sure which one might be angry with them, might be thwarting the fight against the enemy, might be keeping their crops from growing, might be keeping children from them. They were tied to this. A sacrifice here, a good word over here, a constant fear that they're just going to get squashed. Who am I trying to please? I don't even know. I've been reading the Iliad, Homer's work from way back in the day, and I was surprised by how often this cool epic battle story is interrupted by the characters trying to figure out what's going on with the gods and trying to respond appropriately, appropriately to them, to capitulate to them. Zeus is angry over here. Athena can be pleased this way. Apollo wants to go this way. I wanted to read about Achilles, right? In this, there's something about a horse. I haven't got there yet. There's a Trojan horse. But the humans are stopping their fighting and they're sacrificing and then fighting again and then praying to the gods and then fighting again and then sacrificing it again and all the time stuck in an uncertainty. Are we even praying or sacrificing to the right God? They don't even know. The Roman Gentiles sat in that same idea. They had different names for their gods, Jupiter, Mars, Venus. But theirs was still a climate of fear and uncertainty and a spirit of slavery. What is your past story? When you read this, when you read a spirit of slavery, what past do you bring up? What do you think about? Is it performance-based? That religious legalism, is it a continuous marathon of fear and hope that you can please God with today's successes despite yesterday's failures? Is that what you're thinking through? 
Is that that shackle you feel on your soul? Or maybe you've never even considered the law listed in Scripture. You don't even think about that. And you have pinned your hopes to a different God. I doubt that today there's a personified God that one of you is, is pinning their hopes on. Um, but, and probably not of antiquity, but modernity has their own gods that we attach our hopes to. Success, money, status. Or maybe there is a name to God that has instilled in you nothing but fear, and that's why you're sitting here this morning. Whatever your past, my guess is that there are times when you have considered it one of fear or slavery, not good, not fun. It's bondage. Paul starts with this idea so that he can say, you have not received a spirit of slavery. This is not just a cleaned up version of what you had before. This is not just a new thing that will be similar to what you had. This is not a little bit different. This is not the same thing you've been shackled to. This is something astoundingly different, astoundingly unique. This changes the way we relate to God. He continues, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You have received the Holy Spirit. And because of that, your relationship with God is completely different. The Spirit is a spirit of adoption. Paul, this is really interesting, is the only one that uses this word for adoption in the New Testament. The Old Testament has the idea of Israel being a son. There's that sonship idea in the Old Testament, but not often talked about in terms of adoption. Paul jumps into this legal adoption term from the Roman world and attaches it to our relationship with God. He says, you're going to be adopted. There's going to be adoption Basically, Paul is telling the Romans and telling us, you have received the spirit of adoption, and because of that, you are sons. You were someone that was on the outside, unrelated, no blood connection, and now you are sons. And I'm sure you have seen this, this picture happen in your own life. In our own church, we've seen this. A child... On the outside, we watch and they become adopted by a set of parents that love them. We watch that process and we know we see that child with that parent. That child is that parent's son. That child is that parent's daughter. They are connected, parent and child. There is no added adjective when they are described. This is my son. This is my daughter, not adopted daughter, not adopted son. This is my son. This is my daughter. We are connected. We are family. In all legal, familial, relational terms, we are family. Now hear this. Paul is saying that you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. The Holy Spirit is not one of slavery, not one of fear, not one of additional necessary performance. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Sons of God. Daughters of God. Can you just let that hit your soul for a moment? Let that wash your heart for a moment. Let that sit in your mind for a moment. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Not cousins, not family friends, not friends, not close buddies, sons, daughters. I don't know what to do with that. It's hard for, for me to let that sit. 
The magnificent Trinity, the creator of the universe, maker of mankind, has put in action a plan to redeem the broken relationship between God and man, and not just to an ally status, not just to a friend status, not just we're going to walk down the path together and share life a little bit. The Trinity says we're going to give the Holy Spirit to these saved people to us, and that spirit will be a spirit of adoption. I will adopt these people as my sons and daughters. Does that, does that hit you? The Spirit changes the way we relate to God. Maybe, maybe you have a bent like me, and you're a little bit conservative in your terms, and you're, you're probably just thinking, it's just a metaphor for Christian. We're Christians, okay? Let's, let, let's keep reading. Paul says, Spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry. This is not a reserved way to address someone. This is an exclamation. This is a bottom of your gut, cry out, pray with passion, talking to God in full vulnerability kind of cry. This is a crying out, no longer worried about how you look or how it will sound or saying the right things or making sure we have our acts together before we even talk, before we address God. It's not that. It's, it's unafraid. We're reaching out. We're pleading. By the spirit of adoption, we cry. And what are the words? Abba, Father. Father, of course. We could say Father. Our Father who art in heaven, Heavenly Father. Yes, that's, that's an okay term. It's reverent. It's good. I think we can be comfortable. What about the first title? Why are there two of them? Abba. This is an Aramaic word. And Paul just brings it over from Aramaic. He doesn't even translate it. He just keeps it that same way so it can keep its tenderness. It's a term of endearment, very much like our Papa or our Daddy. says, Abba, Father, Father, Heavenly Father, I'm comfortable with that one. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's okay. We're good to go. What do you call your own father? Dad? Daddy? Papa? Pa? Pops, maybe? Maybe you keep it respectful now that you're, you're older. I'm going to call my father, Father. But if you were deep in vulnerable conversation and you knew he cared about you and you're tired and you're sad, what term slips out then? What term of endearment is pushed past your lips when you're in tears? What's that, that, that term coming in your head right now? There is the name we can address God with. Dad. Daddy. Pa. Papa. We're currently teaching Senate, our little boy, what to call us. He hasn't quite figured it out yet, but we're getting close. And I'm teaching him to call me Papa. And as he gets older, he will realize only my kids can call me Papa. Not the neighbor kid, even if we're really close. Not the family friends. Not the cousins. When he is crying, I say, come to Papa. I let him know that his Papa loves him. I hold his head against my own. I look him in the eyes and say, you are my boy. I am your papa. 
Papa, Daddy, Abba, Father, do you realize how amazing this is? There's, there's a closeness that the Spirit is giving us that's not like anything we usually think about. If I may, a, a quick history lesson. We open this book up in the Garden of Eden. That's in Genesis. We have a connection with God, a close connection with God. We walk with God. He calls us by name. He asked where we were, but that was broken. Sin and distrust enter our relationship and it's severed and distant and we become far away from God. And if you know your Bible a little bit, in Exodus, God shows up to rescue his people and he shows up and talks to Moses. And Moses asks, but who are you? Who are you, God? And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that story. And Moses says, but what is your name? He says, I am that I am. In Hebrew, Yahweh. And through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the the people of God knew the name of God. But at some point, we became scared of the name of God. We became scared of, of addressing him incorrectly, of messing it up. And we became so scared that we eventually stopped writing Yahweh in our Bibles and started writing Adonai or Lord. And if you look at your Bible, you probably have seen Lord in small caps. That's because we were freaked out. We were freaked out we were going to address God improperly. We say, Lord, we have distanced ourselves even with the name of God that He gave us. We want to preserve so much the transcendence, the bigness of God that we create distance. But let's not forget the imminence, the closeness, God's desire to be close to us and bring us in. What did he do? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, comes from heaven to earth in a ministry of God's presence and also redemption for us. But that redemption, we know the story, requires the cross. And the cost of the cross is is massive, is difficult, is painful, is terrible. And on the eve of that moment, the passion, what we look at in Good Friday coming up soon, we witness Jesus in that moment when he's, he's bringing closeness between us and God. He's sitting in the garden, praying to God, crying out, out of his gut, fully vulnerable, tears and anguish on the ground, talking to God. And what does he say? His words in Mark 14, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Hear me, listen to me. Papa, Daddy. But, but that's Jesus, you say. That's Jesus. That's God. That's second member of the Trinity. Of course he can call him Papa. Of course he can call him Abba. He's his son. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We can talk to God in a new way with endearment, with affection, with vulnerability, with uncertainty about the stuff around us, with tears. Papa, Daddy, help me, your son. Help me, your daughter. I know that some of us hear this talk about God as father and us as son or daughter and the only personal father experience we can attach it to is a painful one. And that makes it very difficult to see God as a father because it hurts. All fathers are just imperfect shadows of the pure example of God the Father. And some are such distorted shadows that they hurt 
sons and daughters, and I'm so, so sorry. My prayer is that the Spirit will help us move past the broken shadow that we often see of our own broken fathers and see God the Father without the shadow, the the Father that's willing to hear us say, Daddy. Paul continues talking about this. This is the Spirit's work. He says in 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is one of the cool works of the Spirit. This is astounding. The Spirit of adoption bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, God, speaks to us at a deep level with our spirit. The entirety of who we are, our souls, and says, You are a child of God. This is where my task comes up short. I cannot convince you that you are a child of God, an adopted son or daughter, unless the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. That's my prayer. That's my hope this morning, is that the Spirit is working right now, bearing witness, pleading with your spirit, pressing that into your soul. Just listen. The spirit of adoption is better than anything we listen to. I think, as I've looked at this, I think there's a connection with the talk. A couple verses before this, it says, when we walk with the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. And that was a couple verses ago. You can see it. When we let sin stick in our lives, it's often easier to listen to the guilt or the shame or the sin rather than the Spirit that would bear witness to our adoption. Sometimes those things get loud in our lives, right? They just get loud and they start to blare. I know some of you may be sitting there and have dealt with something for so long and it seems easier to keep it secret, keep it in the dark. But sin has a way of becoming louder when it's in the dark. And the louder it gets, the harder it is to hear the Spirit. I, I know this path and that's probably part, part of my reticence to say, Ah, Papa or Ah, Daddy. I am a child of God. I, have walked, I had walked with sin for a long time and thought it was better to keep it in the dark, keep it hidden. And where the Spirit was saying, you are a child of God, it seemed to get quieter and quieter and quieter because shame began to speak up. This stuff is bad. And the enemy, the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of the children spoke up. The stuff in the dark you got, are, are you even saved? Are you, are you a child of God? Do you even know that? Don't leave that stuff in the dark. Don't sit in that. Get in the light. Tell a friend, tell a life group, tell a pastor or an elder we want to pray with you. Let the church help you get in step with the Spirit and help you kill the deeds of the flesh because there is adoption. There is adoption as sons. You are not excluded. You are not out Adoption as sons, and it is good, good, so good to hear that loud and clear. Paul continues to press in. He says, there's a new way to identify. He goes in 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. You have the spirit of adoption. You are a son. The spirit witnesses that you are children of God, and if children, then heirs. I've been using the term son or daughter interchangeably because it says children of God. The reason Paul is using at the beginning 
the word son is because he's putting all the weight into the idea of heir. If you have sonship, you have heir, you have an inheritance. But ladies, this is cool. Our status as heir is not qualified by gender, but by being children of God. You are children of God. So you are heirs of God. Son of God, heir. Daughter of God, heir. Child of God, heir. This is fantastic. And this is where I begin to think, maybe this is too good. We're talking about heir now. We're talking about inheritance. We're talking about belonging to God at such a level that we are given things that his son gets. Maybe I'm reading this incorrectly. I don't know. That's, that's what I began to think. Heirs, I have a connection with God so much that I inherit from him. That's what it says. If you are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, you have a brother in Jesus. You are a co-heir with Jesus, a co-heir with Christ. And Jesus is the one who will sit on a throne and is given all authority and power and glory. You are a fellow heir with Christ. We don't think about this on an average day. This is a new way to identify yourself. This is a new way to think about who you are. The Spirit tells us who we are, and this is completely different than how I think about myself Monday through Sunday. I am a fellow heir of God. My station has been amazingly and astoundingly elevated. It's so much higher than I thought it was. I went from outside to welcomed. Not just welcome, invited in, not just invited in, adopted, made a child, a co-heir with the king of everything. What? This is astounding. These are invigorating ideas. The gospel is a bigger story than simply you were dead and now you're alive. We've reversed the dead thing. You were broken and now you're mended. We fixed the broken thing. Your identity because of the work of Christ and his sending of the Spirit to you has been magnificently elevated, astoundingly modified, inexplicably glorified. This doesn't make any sense. We don't deserve any of this. Just to be mended would be good. But God adopts us as sons. This changes everything. Do you feel this? Does this sit in your soul? Does this begin to excite you a little bit? I've been praying all week, Spirit, please witness to our spirits that we are children of God. Help us understand that in our hearts. Press that knowledge into our very souls. It's true. It's true. The Spirit does amazing things and tells us, bears witness to amazing things. Those of us included in the redeeming story of the gospel are with God, with Christ, at a level that is hard to fathom. Hard to plunge the depths of. We are not just tagalongs. We are not just followers. We are fellow heirs, receivers from God alongside Christ. This is good. This is great stuff. Paul continues, provided we suffer with him. Okay, sometimes, maybe it's just me, you just want to stop reading a passage, right? This is how I felt. We could do 15 through 17a. 
makes it way easier. We could just go. But I pressed in. The Spirit changes even the way we suffer. The Spirit of adoption says that we are sons alongside Christ, co-heirs alongside Christ. And to be in Christ and with Christ is to participate in the things He participates in. Where did we see Him crying, Abba, Father, in the garden? before he experienced the suffering of the cross. His future glory was preceded by suffering. We look to future glory, but it is preceded by suffering, difficulty, pain. There are, two, there are two things here. One, an encouragement. Because we are in Christ, sons and heirs of God, we may experience suffering tied directly to the name of Christ. We may experience slander, financial disadvantage, pain, difficulty, persecution, because we identify with the name of Christ, because we are heirs with Christ. That may happen. We have fellow heirs around the world that face death because they are heirs with Christ. We currently are less likely in the U.S. to do that, to experience that. Maybe something small, maybe in the future something more. But regardless, we can be encouraged that when those things happen, when our fellow heirs experience that, we are encouraged together because we are co-heirs with him. We participate with Christ in his suffering because we are co-heirs. Secondly, I think this idea changes the way we see any type of suffering. Later in chapter 8, we see suffering addressed in all of its forms, tribulation, distress, famine, danger, nakedness, sword, any, anything the world throws at us. It even talks about the groaning of the earth as it waits for redemption. When the spirit of adoption bears witness to us that we are sons, our relationship to suffering is just different. Even the participation of just being in the world and all the brokenness and sickness and hurt that comes with that can now be put in a context of future hope and inheritance. We do not, like many, have to look at suffering and say it's just random machination of the universe. We know because of our participation in the gospel that we remain in a broken world to which Christ subjected himself. And that's that it, its restoration has been set by Christ. And as we wait for our co-heir, we wait for restoration. We participate in this broken world the way he did and look forward to his return. Spirit changes the way we look at suffering. There is encouragement there and there's a different perspective on enduring suffering. Paul, gladly, he does not leave it there and it gets even better. He says, we participate in his suffering in order that we also may be glorified with him. Finally, Paul says, we suffer in order that we may also be glorified with him, with Christ, with our co-heir. Even if we suffer in the future, even if we suffer now in the present, it's something you're dealing with. As you sit here, please know that you will be glorified with Christ. Those are connected. You participate with Christ in his suffering. You participate with Christ in his glory. Our adoption is not second-class sonship. We suffer with him, yes, but praise be to God, we will be glorified with him. We will share in Christ's glory. This is hard to fit into our heads. It's hard to understand. It's hard for our hearts to go, is it really that good? It's, it's as though we are peasants in a kingdom that had a good, good, good king. 
And as peasants, we revolted and became rebels. And the king did a great work with his son, the prince, a magnificent work. And the work was so good and so glorious that it mended the relationship between the king and his people, the king and the rebels. And if this were a normal story, we would say, and the people got to live in their little homes again, and the king lived in his castle, and it was good. But that's not our story. The king fixes, the king redeems, and he invites the people into the castle. And these four rebels look around and they say, this is glorious. We get to be in here? This is amazing. And the king gives them clothes, kingly clothes. And they are amazed. And he invites them into his banquet hall. And they, they don't even know what to say. We're going to eat here? We get to be here? We get to live here? And the king looks them in the eyes and holds their head in his hands and said, I have adopted you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I am your father, your daddy, your papa. And they are confused and happy and delighted and awed and they go to sit at the end of the table as far away as they can at the small side. And they are told, no, no, no. You sit with the prince. You sit with the one who will get the crown. You sit with him. You are co-heirs with him. You will be glorified with him. The end of the narrative of this grand story, not just this little parable, but the story of the entire universe is the return of Christ to sit on a throne ruling over restored creation, heaven and earth fully joined as it ought to be. Christ receiving glory as he ought to receive it. And we share in that because we are heirs with him. You are sons and daughters of God to be glorified with Christ. Does that seem too good? It's true. Why do we know this? Because the spirit of adoption has been given to us because we are sons, because we are daughters. The spirit bears witness to our spirit, implores our spirit that we are children of God. If you don't have that right now and it sounds good, talk to God right now. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Savior that died to redeem me. Send the spirit of adoption to convince me that I am a son of God. If you know that truth, but you don't feel moved by that truth, ask the spirit to come and convince you and remind you that you are a child of God. Ask him to help you kill that sin that seems too loud and remind you of your adoption. If you are brimming with excitement and this seems to pull at your bones and is exciting and awesome, then you have reason to sing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for sending the spirit of adoption. Holy Spirit, thank you for your work. Impress us with the knowledge and conviction and excitement that we are children of God, that we are co-heirs with Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't even fit in my brain properly. I only understand a sliver. Help us to understand it in its full glory. That we are co-heirs with Christ. That we have inheritance alongside Christ. Press that into our hearts. Let it not just be an intellectual assent, an agreement or a checkbox, but something that stirs our hearts and our souls 
and has us crying out to God the Father with a term of familiarity, Papa, Daddy. Papa, thank you for being unbelievably good to us. Thank you for adopting us. Spirit, help us understand and glory in that as we anticipate future glory. Amen.